I really want us to just see each other. Like, I know that we have eyes, but like really see people. Like if we could just see each other past the color and really feel each other um, and, and just have some type of humanity, whew, I think that we, that we could we could move mountains if we just felt each other like just has a little more empathy for each other meet Chiquana Boykin the lifelong Brooklyn resident who recently ran and won an election to become district leader for her community in Brooklyn Shaquana has an incredible story after entering the foster care system as a teenager she went on to complete her associate's degree and bachelor's degree, and also completed an AmeriCorps year with the program Public Allies. She went on to work as an engagement coordinator at Ingersoll Houses in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. Ingersoll Houses is a public housing community that is home to nearly 1,600 families, and Shaquana helped to lead the residents and related local agencies through a planning process to improve safety throughout the community. When she decided to run for office to become a district leader, she didn't just win an election, she changed the game. In a district with over 100,000 registered voters, usually only 6,000 turned out to vote for district leader elections. As a result of the unique approach Shaquana took in her campaign, more than 29,000 voters turned out on her election day. She not only beat an established incumbent, she increased voter turnout nearly 400%. In her conversation today, Shaquana talks about her experiences growing up and entering the foster care system in Brooklyn and what she learned from her service experiences. She talks about why she chose to enter the political arena. She also explains how she managed to not only win her campaign, but transform the turnout levels in her community. Finally, since we're having this conversation during Plaque History Month, she shares her perspective on what this month means to her and what she hopes America is thinking about and reflecting on at this complicated moment for the nation. Shaquana is a remarkable servant leader, and I'm thrilled to lift up her voice and experience on our show today. Before jumping into my interview with Shaquana, though, I've got some important info to share. I want to let our listeners know that applications for two programs run by the New Politics Leadership Academy are now open. Answering the Call is our program for servant leaders who hear a voice in their soul wondering if they feel called to serve again through politics. It's a five-session virtual small group reflection process that's led by trained and skilled facilitators, and it's designed to help individuals who have served in the past decide if they want to enter the arena. Staffing School is our program for individuals who are interested in working as a campaign staffer. It's a chance to learn how to become a campaign manager, finance director, field director, or communications director. You can learn more about both of these programs on our website at www.newpoliticsacademy.org. And the deadline to apply is Wednesday, March 23rd. So if you're interested, I hope you'll check them out and also help us spread the word. And with that, it's time to dive into our conversation with Shaquana Boykin. Shaquana Boykin, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So I'm going to start where I always start on this podcast, which is what's your earliest memory of learning the value of service? Um, I would say I was probably around 14 and I was working or volunteering at um Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Um, and it wasn't immediately. It was like that summer. At the end of the summer, we received a stipend. Um, 
But the whole time we was working, they said there will be, you're not getting paid, that you're you're helping. You're helping care to the garden, care to uh, people who come to the garden. And when I received the stipend, I was like, I don't know. It kind of clicked a little more that I was given like service um, because a lot of times people say, oh, you have to get paid for the things that you're doing. So even though I didn't get paid the entire summer at the end, when I received the stipend, it felt good. <laughs> nice. Nice. Um, so you grew up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and your your life, a whole life in Brooklyn. Um, tell us a little bit about your early family life, the part you're willing to, you know, willing to share about some key experiences that shaped you in those early years. Sure. Um, uh, living in Crown Heights in the 90s, um, it's very different than Crown Heights in 2022. Uh, I would say that I grew up uh, in a, a a household that had lots of people in it. Um, I grew up with my um, my godmother who has uh, already has three kids. So my godbrothers and then my aunt was there. Um, my uncle was there. And I remember just a house full of people, full of life. I never really understood that there was multiple families in one home, but it was always loving. I always had a friend, even though I'm the only child. Um, then I would say public school. Uh, I didn't realize how public school, how how in New York City public school really focused on. Um, they they focused on education, but one year I was able to go to another school in Jersey, and the comparison between a public school in New York City and a public school in New Jersey was drastic. Mm, mm -hmm. So I'm thinking like, I'm in New York City, we're getting the best education. We had no lab room. Mm. We did labs. It was uh, just talking to the teacher. Um, sometimes he would go to the science um, lab, but nothing was working. Um, I remember using a microscope and we all had to share. And then that one year I went to Lakewood, New Jersey we didn't have to share nothing. The books right. was all new. We were like extracurricular activity. Everybody was into basketball or cheerleading or and I was, I even learned how to crochet. <laughs> In public like, school. Okay. It was they had different. everything. Yeah. Yep. It was different. Yep. Um, but I made it when I came back to New York and went back to public school. I kind of valued the experience that I had in Lakewood, New Jersey. Um, and even though our school was not, our schools are not as prestige yeah. Um, yeah. and didn't have TVs and didn't do uh, assemblies in the morning. I don't know. I still valued just being in, in a public school in New York and knowing that like we are learning, but we have it tough. Like yeah. there's other people yeah. who get everything handed to them. So shouts out to public school in New York city who has toughened me up. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. And so I know you entered foster care as a teenager and one of your key motivations as an elected official is advocating for the young people who are currently in that system. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience and how it informs your commitment to serve the community today? Yes. Um, I got into foster care probably literally a couple months after my 16th birthday. Um, 
I had started living back with my mom, my birth mother, um, and we just could not um, get along. Um, and I was working. I was working at Brooklyn Botanic Gardens since I was 14. So I was still working there at 16. And going to school. Yep. Yes. Yep. And then someone told me about an uh, organizing job at Acorn at the time. They're, they were called Acorn. Right now, they rebranded to New York Communities for Change. But I was like, they taught me how to like have conversations with people, um, how to have one-on-ones, how to shove a clipboard in someone's hand and get them to sign. And that was like my second step into civics, I felt like, because we were, I was in, I was in high school. They were um, advocating for um, removing lead paint in schools. And I'm in school. And you're in school. Yeah. And I was, I had just got into forced to care. And I remember the experience was crazy. Um, we had, a, um, my, me and my mom had a bad experience in the house and it led to um, some physical um, implications in the school called um, and they removed me from my home. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first day you go to the hospital, they, um, they examine you. Then you go to the ACS building in New York City. And it's this building you you can come with clothes if you have or nothing, but you go through metal detectors. They check everything you have. If you have a cell phone, they remove the cell phone from you. And you go upstairs, depending on your age. I was 16, so I had to go to go with the 16 mm -hmm. um, and older um, children. You get uniform, sweatshirts, sweatpants, t-shirts, you get underwear, everything. It's I've never been to jail, but when I hear people sounds like it, right. It felt like a mini jail. <laughs> you get a like a, a little personal package with like brush, comb, and then you go to their doctor again. You you get uh they test you, see if you're pregnant, all types of stuff. Right. And then you go to your room, which your room is like a room, like imagine a gym filled with just like cots, uh like cots everywhere. Yeah. So it's just this big room with everybody 14 and up. Um, no, it was six, you know, 14 and up mm -hmm. in a room. And the next day you have school. Like if it's Monday through Friday, you have school. And school is you and everybody in that group going to a classroom that has computers. And there's one adult that will ask you, well, what grade are you in? And I said, I think at the time I was in like 11th grade, 10th or 11th grade. And um, they give you a paperwork and you do your your 10th grade work or your 11th grade work. So going into the foster care system meant you left the New York public schools and this became your schooling experience. Yes. Wow. Wow. Okay. And how many, I, I have to ask, how many people in this big public sleeping space? Uh, like it had to be 40? at least. It, it had to be at least 15 of us. Wow. It's about 15 yeah. females. Yeah. Yeah. So I was talking about public school, but it's, I would rather go to New York City public school than yeah. ACS school. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that experience, just being around others, especially um, like I was removed from my home, you know, because of an altercation. Yeah. And I was going through physical, um, sorry, emotional um, sure. trauma. Sure. 
Mm-hmm. A lot of the, the young people were going through physical trauma, emotional trauma. Some was even pregnant and they were mm-hmm. young, right? Mm-hmm. And us trying to figure out what are we doing? And it feels like we're literally in a dungeon. Yeah. How long were you in that situation? It's funny because days don't really add up when you're in there. So, yeah. and it felt like, you ever go to um, a pet shop and you go get a, a pet or you see the puppies or the kittens and yeah. the, that's how we were. So you go to school and after school is at three, you go to um, you go to something called like uh, like uh, the snack room. But it's really no, the, the game room. There's no games. There's a yeah. TV, a telephone yeah. and some yeah. snacks yeah. and couches. So they have some board games and books and you go there from three to around eight. So you're stuck you in a room from three to eight? In between there, you eat. Like, you have lunch, dinner and snacks. Yeah. But that's where you are. That's your rec time. You can you allowed use the phone to call. go outside? Did you have... No, no outside. No you outside. You can't leave the building. You can't leave the building. No, room. you cannot leave the building. So wow. they said okay. that when they used to leave the building, people used to run away. Yeah. Go figures. Yeah, can you imagine? Um, yeah. <laughs> But you cannot leave. And how you get uh, to leave the building is between three and eight, somebody will pick you, a family or a um, a, a youth group home mm, okay. would come and pick you. So it would just all of us in there every day. Waiting. I cannot tell you. I believe it was probably like a month. Like everything seemed... I don't know. I would just wake up and do the same thing all over. It had to be a month. Um, And I remember going to the woman's home and she had a three um, in in New York. We have brownstones. Um, She had a three family brownstone. She lived at the bottom. She rented the second and all the teenagers were at the top. And I had already was working and everything. This was just like something else that helped me be a little more um, independent having someone who's supposed to take care of you not take care of you um and being like I was like the mom of the the house I would be like okay it's time to go to school get up let's go and I would drag everybody out of school and sometimes people would come back in the house but I was just like that motivator yeah um we didn't have a we didn't we weren't allowed to use the stove she worked a lot so um, I guess she didn't want us to like burn down the house. Right. So we used the microwave. So I would say that whole year that I was there, I used the microwave a lot. I had a lot of TV dinners, yeah. a lot of cereal. Um, and at that point, were you back in public school once you were at her house? I was were, back yeah, in public okay. school. Okay. I went I went to Sheepshead Bay. Yep. Um, I was allowed to go back to Sheepshead Bay High School um, and be a regular kid, even though I was like. Right. Right. And forced to care. Yeah. Um, and were you able to keep the job at the botanical gardens at that point? Yes. You were, so that continued all the way through all of this. Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. They were wow. like really my sounding board um, to be able to, when things change when you're a teen and you have something that's like a little constant. Something stable. Right. It's, it felt good. Yeah. 
So I know you went on, you got an associate's degree at CUNY's Kingsborough Community College and then a bachelor's of science degree in legal studies at CUNY yes. New York City College of Technology. Tell us about the journey from foster care to college and how you made that happen. Yeah. Um, so as soon as you, when you're in um, foster care and you are around 15, you are allowed to go to life skills classes and life skills um, is supposed to teach you um, when you turn 18, uh, give you tools, I say in your toolbox to be um, a productive adult. Mm -hmm. um, but I always went to work, so I never made it to life skills. Um, but when you turn 18, if you're um, if your worker feels like you're um, you're independent enough, you can apply to not only colleges, you can apply to um, what is called housing in New York City or Section 8. Mm -hmm. So because of the, the home that I was in, it, it just didn't feel right being with a woman who worked all the time, never had any like time for me. It just felt like I was just like her extra income and I was like, okay, I know I want to be in New York City. Mm -hmm. I could go away to college, but if this is where I want to be, how about I just get an apartment and try to go to school? So I literally did everything at 18. I applied, I applied for colleges. I applied for um, housing. A couple of days before I turned um, 19, I got my first apartment that um and I enrolled into uh, Lehman College. Lehman College was great, but the commute was so bad um, from the Bronx to Brooklyn. So after a year, I did uh, go to uh, City Tech in, in Brooklyn. Right. Um, and I will say I did take a year off. Um, you do, you are allowed to get... Um, so when you are in foster care, you can uh, apply for, uh, it's called the EV EVT voucher, where it can help you give, get a computer for school mm -hmm. and you get um, uh, someone to talk to. At the time, I didn't understand the value of that. Mm -hmm. I used to be like, why do I have to talk to this person once a month? This is annoying, right? And I remember talking to this man. I can't remember his name. I, I don't know. Can't remember. But he was asking me about, I was going to school, I was going, I was in college and I kept saying like, I, I think I need glasses. Mm -hmm. And then he told me like, oh, go get a screen in or whatever. I got the screen and I got glasses, but I would forget my glasses, right? Every day, forget my glasses. So I'm struggling. I'm getting headaches. Mm -hmm. And he asked me a simple question. He was like, do you feel that you're leaving your glasses um, is like a subconscious thing because you're so used to like struggling and the fact that you would have your glasses on and wouldn't be struggling wow. would be something different for you. And it was like dawned on me. Like I'm like sabotaging myself wow. because I'm so yeah. used to the struggle. Yeah. Amazing. And to have glasses and see. And not struggle. Right. Wow. I do have to back up though. You were applying to college and applying for Section 8. Did you have support and resources or you were just trying to navigate all that as an 18 year old on your own? So um, I did get so, um, some resources from my, um, my, my social worker, but most of it was just me trying to figure out things like everything was new. Like I was yeah. like, wait, 
how do I, why is there nothing in my refrigerator? Like, why is there no soap? I had to like realize like, this is everything that you have to do as an adult. Like whatever you need in your home has to be in your home. You got to do it. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Amazing. And I would have never made it without support. Like between going back to, to my bachelor's degree, I, I dropped out of college and I was an AmeriCorps um, public ally. And I remember at the end, you get a stipend um, to go back to school. And that's mm -hmm. how I finished school. And I remember thinking about the process as I was um, AmeriCorps um, public ally, having that experience working in um, nonprofits and doing real work. And it just made me want to go back to college so much because before that I was like, why am I in college? Like why I'm in school? Mm. Like I'm, I'm thinking I want to be a lawyer, but like, what, what does this mean? So having a little break and being able to unpack what I want to do, which was basically serve and, and, and really have a space for young people especially a young black woman like myself because every space that i go to they're always screaming youth 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 soon as the young person is in the room crickets it's it's like what do we do with the young person it's not what do we do with the young person this young person lives in this world with us we're going to train them the same way you would train an adult yep. to do the work yep and I want to just be able to be in those spaces to make sure that people yeah. know, like, we can bring in young people. Yeah. Well, I did want to go next to your service experiences. <clears throat> so tell us tell us about Public Allies and how you found it and kind of the, the, the choice to do it. And then tell us a little more about what that experience was like for you. Sure. Um, it was my first year. And uh, no, I had graduated from um, Kingsboro and I thought that that was just life. Like I have my two year degree. I'm about to go out there and make some money. No. Um, and then I, my bills was just like piling up, piling up. And I went to um, a, a interview for Green City Force and they were they're about they were about to change uh, how we see New York. They were about to um, make it um, green, efficient homes. And I was like, I would definitely want to be a part of this and you make money. And I didn't get in. I had too many credits. You had to have under 18 credits. No, under 12 credits. I had 18 credits mm. at the time. Um, and I went to, I went to, I was on a bus and a woman, I was telling somebody like, oh my God, I, I want to do something that I, I like. I don't want to just work just to work. And a woman, she was, she said, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be in your business, but could you put this website in your phone and apply? Just somebody on the bus. Just a random Amazing. woman on a bus. Amazing. Uh -huh. And she told me to put public allies in my phone. And I and I looked at it. I didn't really, I was like, uh, whatever, public allies. But then I did apply probably like two days later. And I got the interview. And I remember at the interview, they kept asking me what I want to do. And it was 
very, very uh, a new experience at an interview because most interviews they tell uh, they tell you what you're doing, um, and they're like, "Okay, you want the job or no?" But they were like asking me mm-hmm. what I wanted to do and saying, "We're gonna match you to an organization that you could thrive in." And I'm just like, "What does that mean?" And being able to have somebody match you to a, a, a job that then impacts your life, like being able to work with tenants in Flatbush um, really impacted my life. Yeah. Tell uh, us about the work. So you get connected to a nonprofit. Tell us about the I nonprofit. I connected and what sort of to stuff a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And um, their, their work was tenant organizing, but in a way that was different than what I understood organizing was. I thought as an organizer, you stand in front of people, you get them together, you listen, you make a plan, go. This organizing was, we were organizing tenants and buildings. And in order to organize the building, the tenant had to come back with 30% of their building. Because whatever was happening to you is most likely happening to a neighbor. And we learned that it, we were powerful together. But mm-hmm. in all my service, I use people power now. Like we got so powerful. We were able to not just come into buildings and say, okay, let's do this. We were able to educate tenants and listen to tenants. So when we left, the work can still go. Mm-hmm. We were able to teach them what a MCI was. When when people, when a, a tenant leaves a home um, in New York City, the landlord is legally obligated to raise the rent 20%. And what was happening is if you don't know your rights and you have all these people coming in and out your building, you do something called deregulate the building. So if you get... of the building that's deregulated, that means you can, the apartments can now be market rates. And there were landlords doing so much things to our immigrant community. Yeah. And it was like people saying to me, well, Shaquana, I'm from Haiti. Like I live better here than in Haiti. And I'm like, well, we don't live like this here. There's no way that you should be putting your arm through your bathroom um, wall and your arm is reaching the alley that you can see outside, that you have running water that just keeps running, that you have water in the basement that has breeded uh, mosquitoes that comes up from the basement and bite you and your children on your back. Mm-hmm. That is not the type of, of, um, things that tenants are supposed to be going through and mm-hmm. they're paying in New mm-hmm. York city. Mm-hmm. So that was impactful. Um, and it just made me feel like I'm actually doing something. <laughs> I'm not just like going yeah. to work. Like I'm like helping people. And like these people, even though I would have like a one-on-one with them, they would, we would learn how to, how to do an agenda, how to facilitate how to get other people in the building to do things, how to door knock, you know, um, what what happens when a a landlord retaliates? How do we come back? You know, how do we get uh, the whole building to come together and reduce our rent because the landlord isn't doing well? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so that work was just transformational. Yeah. 
Say a little bit more about how that, how do you think that experience shaped you, that AmeriCorps experience? Um, on Fridays uh, in AmeriCorps, we had, um, I was in the advanced leadership track. So that meant that I get to learn about ways uh, to be an organizer, but to also self-identify with um, what's going on with myself, self-care, and also really being able to navigate relationships. Um, because when you're giving yourself to people, um, that's a lot of energy. Um, so just what really shaped me was like being able to do all this hard work. Like a lot of times I would go home and be very, very sad to know that people were living like this and I get to go home and have mm. heat yep. and hot water and some people weren't. Um, I think what what grounded me through this that experience was the Fridays where we were able to understand how groups form, how gangs form, how to understand your body. We, we learned how to meditate. We learned how to um, know, recognize burnout. And, and, and learn how to delegate. A lot of times when we're organizers, we feel like we must lead everything and do everything, but it's okay to lead and tap in people and, ha and have, their, have their skills amplified. Or maybe they, were, they weren't good in that and now they are. Um, so being able to work on a full self mm. um, and still do the work was very transformational. Yeah. I learned that like when I'm stressed, I get like um, a tension in my shoulders and I didn't realize it. I just was like, oh, my shoulders hurt, my shoulders hurt. No, Shaquana, you're stressed. You mm -hmm. need to, you know, to do sign. something mm -hmm. to, you know, get mm -hmm. back. Um, so yeah. Powerful. Uh, so you did your uh, public allies year. You went back to school and finished your bachelor's. Then what happened after that? In between um, going back to school, um, right after Public Allies, I landed a full-time job um, at Myrtle Avenue uh, Brooklyn Partnership, where I basically sprouted into the professional that I am. I'm mm, um, using the skills and the tools from Public Allies. Um, I was already uh, had experience in a nonprofit um, because of Public Allies. And then when I came to um, my my full time job, it was a small nonprofit and we had to do everything like I was learning how to um, organize in my own community that I was living in. And I was I was I was the manager for healthy communities. So that encompassed yeah, everything around food security in Fort Greene, Clinton Hill. Mm -hmm. So that meant I I literally created and managed multiple projects. So I created the community corner. The community corner was on the corner of uh, Fort Greene Park. Um, there is a farmer's market. And on, the farmer's market is on the other side of the park. And where in New York, a lot of people use this word gentrification. I've always been a person that look um, at the bigger picture and not like just tunnel vision. So the community corner was literally on the corner between the park where more wealthier people um, lived and on the other side where I lived in public housing. Mm -hmm. 
So a lot of people in public housing didn't know about the farmer's market, didn't know how to shop at the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. And when I first thought about this idea, I was like, no one's going to really come, but I think this is a real good idea. And I remember going the first day, no one came to the community corner. The first hour I walked across the street and went to the um, Bravo supermarket. And I was like, does anybody want fresh collard greens, spinach, apples? And they were turned around and was like, yeah. I was like, follow me. Check we're it gonna out. go to the farmer's market. It's across the street down a block. And they were like, the farmer's market is over here. I'm like, yeah. And I remember I took them there. We get to the first stand. Um, and the first stand was um, our, our milkman, Stony Brook. Um, so they start picking up milk. They go to another tent, start picking up stuff. And I say, hey, wait, stop. No. Every tent is their own store. So this is not like the grocery store. Right, right. Every tent is their own store. We give the tent the money before we go to another tent. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because when I was thinking about this program, I really was like, everybody knows how to shop at the farmer's market. But what if not, right? I'm just, right. I'm always trying to mm -hmm. worry about the other people. Mm -hmm. And to see that literally they did not know how to shop at the farmer's market. I'm just like, this is great. And I was able to introduce them to um, the tent where they can use their SNAP EBT. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was able to um, introduce a, a community chef who would take items from the farmer's market, bring it to the corner, make a $10 or less meal, mm -hmm. give, it, give people samples and the recipes just to promote people to go into the um, farmer's market. Yeah. And on Sundays, we got a grant from like Walmart. And I was really, I'm into food because I I started growing food at, at um, Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Mm -hmm. I noticed that tomatoes just taste really different in a supermarket than mm -hmm. growing. So in my uh, grocery store, I also learned that we could say gentrification, but if we don't take if we don't take um, charge in our communities, it that's it's it's gonna be what people want it to be, right? Some people want that new thing, right? So they galvanize to get that, right? This store has been here for over twenty years. It's on NYCHA's New York City Housing Authority property. Is it a tenant of New York City Housing Authority? This grocery store had one wall of refrigerators. So if you know a supermarket, if the supermarket is not controlled temperature wise, what happens to the meat mm. oils? Mm -hmm. So you have the meat that people poke. They were poking holes in it to smell their meat. So I would have a chef come with me. I would have a five dollar at the time. Oh, a ten dollar gift card. And the chef would make a healthy snack in the supermarket. And I would just go around with people and ask like, hey, can I go around and shop with you while wow. you shop yeah. and just ask you questions? And at mm -hmm. the end, I can give you $10 to, to do a, a fun activity, spend this $10 on a healthier snack. Mm -hmm. right? And I would go around with people and we would read food labels and they would be like, well, Shaquana, I'm getting like, uh, this says low, low salt. So I, I go with them. I say, well, you know, a lot of our branding is sensationalized, right? We, what we may think is low salt 
in, in the food world, low salt just means less salt. No salt means lesser salt. <laughs> um, you ever look at the back of the, the, the label and you see something that says natural, natural foods. No, that does not mean that you have natural foods in this product. Mm. That is the name of a organ of a company that uses something that somehow is able to brand their ingredient as natural food. Then you have people who pick up raviolis on the back of ravioli. The sodium intake for that is 1800 milligrams. An adult is supposed to have 1800 milligrams a day, a day. Right. So right. to have that in one meal servings, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it doesn't do anything for our health. But a lot of times we eat unhealthy because we don't know. And it starts to dawn on me. I ate Franks and beans with rice and butter because that's what I was given. No one told me about ingredients on the back of things, what, what's good from our bodies. We just always were able to make do what, what we had. So being able to talk with people on Sundays about things that they probably wouldn't have known. I was even able to notice that our shelters, they were not allowing um, our um, people to come in with glass and anything that was organic or healthy was wrapped in glass. So I was able to take surveys back to our grocery store and say, hey, you know, a lot of people would like to purchase these um, products, but because it's in glass, they can't take it back to their um, to their residence because there's no glass allowed. And being able to change the the buying of, mm-hmm. of grocery stores in the neighborhood right now in 2022, the grocery store has three walls of refrigerators. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Three walls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is freezing. It is actually a grocery store that we can actually go to and yeah. purchase quality food. Amazing. Amazing. And I believe it's all about just showing up, listening mm-hmm. to people and being able to talk to you know the people who have the ability to change maybe the grocery store manager didn't understand that and being able to provide information from the community and what we feel like we need they were able to listen to us and do it it's awesome two years yep yep awesome all right so shaquana it's time to talk politics so you're doing this work changing your community. And at some point you say, I'm going to run for district leader for assembly district 57 to represent your community in Brooklyn. Tell yeah. us about the process of making that decision. How did, how'd you get there? Um, I never wanted to be, um, in politics, but what I was learning as an organizer that I didn't know what our politicians were doing. And I just seen them in New York, just coming in saying hi and leaving. And sometimes even trying to explain legislation, but, they were, weren't even clear on what it was. So uh, I'm, a, I'm an opportunity youth um, uh, community leader and now on the National so Council. Explain for listeners who don't understand what Opera Youth is. Say a little bit more about that. Yeah, so talk a little bit more about it later. Youth, yeah. yeah, Opportunity Youth United um, is a national movement 
Um, and it started around 2012, a group of young people who uh, we we all call ourselves opportunity youth. Um, the word just means that you may have called us disadvantaged youth. We may have came uh, dropped out of high school or college and, and decided that we needed um, something else to motivate us to be effective adults. Um, and what motivated uh, a lot of us, um, some of us has went to youth build um, year up, um, but I'm a public ally. So I dropped out of college and I went to public allies and I realized like the world needs me mm -hmm. and I need to go back to school so I could be able to do what I want to do for the world. Um, so yes, Opportunity Youth United is a movement to make sure that we could build on, on our youth programming. Um, so we definitely work on Reconnecting Youth Campaign where we help um, not only talk to Democrats, but talking to Republicans and Democrats who will be able to uh, uh, put money into the federal appropriation cap. Um, what, what I learned about politics is it's cool to have a little crew of people you like, but in politics, everybody needs to know what these bills or legislation is because they have to vote on it. So I love just meeting with representatives and being able to be like, did you know about this? Look at that. So that's what we do at Opportunity Youth. We, we advocate for um, young people across um, the United States. Okay, and so we're now national. You were part of that campaign. You were were you an organizer for opportunity? Like, what, what's your role? So, um, when you're a community leader, you community leader. use your okay. experience. Yep. And the um, so you you're going to DC, and you are fighting for a few um, things. And for us, uh, every community leader is different. Um, I fight for funding uh, for national service. Um, because of public allies. Mm -hmm. So we we would get organized by our national council. So now I would do that. At the time, I was a community leader. Mm -hmm. So the national council would reach out to Democrats and Republicans in D.C. Um, and, and the Congress to, um, meet with to meet with them or a representative to talk with um, a, a young person um, or a person who has experienced a, a program. So when we're talking to um, the, the Congress person, they not only see a paper of how much they invested into that program, but they see the product like, well, this is how much you invested or didn't invest. And this is who I am now. And using my story and data to really get them to understand because all they do is is see data all day, but can you imagine being a representative and you know you see this impact um, on a sheet, and then you see several um, young people from Youth Builds, uh, Public Allies, Year Up, come in front of you, speaking to you, thriving in their communities. It's only right to invest. Yeah. So you know, in your day job, you're serving your community in Brooklyn, and then you also have these opportunities where you're going to D.C. and advocating yes. for national service and things. When did you say, I'm going to run for district leader? When did you, um, it when was, did you decide to get it, me, Rita? Yeah, it was, I decided to run for district leader around 2019 um, when I was working for the mayor's office and um, I was working on safety and everybody uh, in public housing at the time was telling me, Shaquana, I feel safe. I feel safe. I think we just don't have the resources. Like 
this brochure you're showing me with all of these resources to Department of the Asian, to HRA, Human Resources, um, to Youth Services, I don't see them. So I would I brought it back to the mayor's office and they were like, this is great information, Shaquana, but we're not dealing with that right now. We're dealing with safety. And that didn't sit well with me. Mm -hmm. I did not want to be a part of the problem. I love to be a part of solutions, even if nobody knows I'm there. Mm -hmm. Be a part of the solution just makes me feel better. So in the same instant, the people I convene a group of, of public housing residents. We usually meet on Saturdays. That Saturday, they came in two hours before me. I usually come in at eleven, and when I got there, they had a brunch for me. They they cooked all this food. They had gifts for me. They had a card, and I remember Miss Edith Tucker. She took out a piece of paper and she read, and she read me a speech. And at the end of her speech, she said, "We want you to serve us past being our mayor's office engagement coordinator." And I did not understand what that meant. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That same week, I got um, an email from Dorothy Stoneman. Saying that she has an opportunity. So let's just, Dorothy Stoneman is the founder of Youth Build for folks yes, who don't know. She yes. Is. Yep. Okay. She she um, reached out and she said that um, she had this great um, opportunity for people who've done national service, military service, um, to get the tools that they need to maybe figure out if they want to run in their communities. So I went to New Politics um, uh, in DC. They had a, um, a event and I went there with some other opportunity youth um, who were in different states. And there were one person I was in the Bronx, I'm in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. um, and we got to listen to people who were running, listen to people who ran. We got to um, have a short workshop on what, how, how do you ask questions? Um, we got little workshops on just like how to make a speech. And I remember I still have my speech, like the speech that I did. Nice. Um, and I remember at the end, going back to Brooklyn, just knowing, noticing that I have all these new friends and everybody's like texting me and calling and they're like, Shaquana, are you going to run? And I'm like, I don't know. And the same that week that I came back from New Politics, um, four four people came up to me and was like, "Can I teach you about the district leader role? I think you should run." All right. And I was like, "That is crazy. Mm -hmm. Tell me more." And when they told me that the district leader role is an unpaid position, but it deals with Democratic Party activity, I said in New York, "I need to be that person because." We're full of money grabbers. And to be able to be an elected official that doesn't get paid, that just does this for the passion and heart, I wanted to show people what that could look like. Wow. And you get to work with a county committee. And county committee are people in your district who run to represent four blocks. So I said, wow, I will really know what's going on because I'm the district leader, the, the county committee, um, not reports to me, but talks to me. We do things together. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be like an elected official who's like lost. <laughs> so that's why I decided to run. And 
I actually won a year later. Tell me about the campaign. What, what's it like campaigning? How was that experience for you? Um, campaigning was a learning curve. Um, and it wasn't because, like, honestly, I also did um, new politics, um, answering a call. So I kind of got a little bit of the craziness that happens in politics. But what, what grounded me was knowing that, like, going to new politics, they always tell you, like, you just need to be open. You need to, like, talk to people. And I just realized, like, if I don't know, I need to just be open and be able to talk to people. So I was like, anytime I felt that I didn't understand, I was continuously trying to learn. So the people who had the positions before me, I was trying to learn from them. But again, as a young person, I'm 31, a lot of our elected officials are over 40 and they Mm -hmm. do not respect me coming in without being picked um, or working under someone's office. It's not your turn, right? Yeah, it wasn't my turn. Yep, yep. (laughs) So the campaign went exactly how I would have loved it to go. I will be honest to you, I did not think I was going to win. And I didn't think I was going to win, not because I'm amazing. It was just that I was going up against an incumbent, And an incumbent is someone who already has the seat. So this person had this seat for over 10 years. Wow. Wow. And I was like, how am I going to share with everybody how our incumbent is not doing anything for us, but I don't want to attack her. So I just went on an educational um, campaign. Mm. What I did was I did my best to teach people what a district leader was and is. Mm-hmm. Our role is to deal with the Democratic Party activity. We are supposed to be hiring people to be poll workers. We are supposed to be making sure when people go to the ballot, primaries or general election, they know the judges that's on a ballot. So having informationals for people to know about the judges. One thing that doesn't go on a ballot is Supreme Court judges. And as the district leader, we get to vote on the Supreme Court slots. Mm. Very important, Mm -hmm. but no one would talk about this. So my campaign consisted of educating as many voters as I could. And I first had to, knowing that I'm from this community, first had to look back and say, what have the people done before me? Again, not to bash anybody, just to work on doing more. Mm -hmm. And within that, I noticed that a lot of people were not registered. We have over 125,000 registered voters in the district. And still me living in public housing, going around asking people to sign my petition. They were like, Shapana, I'm not registered to vote. I'm like, what, 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 what? So I had already been doing a voter registration campaign with Opportunity Youth. And I was just able to use that knowledge Mm. Go to a board of elections, get more um, uh, size, um, voter registration cards, and just learn to always have, with my um, volunteers, always have voter registration cards with us. Always looking at our maps. So my, my road to success was looking at the district map, looking at what 
what what person is going to run for county committee in that district, those blocks. So I didn't have to go because mm-hmm. they could carry my petition. Um, what what do voters want to hear? So making sure my literature was very clear that this is what I want to do. This is what I've been doing. And this is how I think I will get there. And also showing up like it was a whole pandemic like being outside being vulnerable being able to again partnerships when you are in a role that doesn't have any funding that doesn't mean you do nothing that means you partner 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 and that's what made our community as i was running better community because our community was so used to this person doing that, that person doing that. And I was like, I don't care if you don't want to put my name, let's do this together. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you don't like that organization or that elected official, I'm going to connect us and we're going to do this together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just being the bridger. Yeah. I have to ask, there must've been election night. What, like, what was it like when you saw that you had won? Give us, bring us to that moment. First of all, election day. Election day crazy because um i had my campaign team had this crazy idea of literally going to every polling site having four volunteers at every polling site so at every corner whichever way you come you get a shaquana card and you're like if you're undecided well here's your card and you can vote for her and then i would bike to every election poll and what I kept seeing the numbers. So let's back up. We have 125,000 registered Democrats, but in the past 10 years, only 6,000 registered Democrats had voted. On election day at 3 p.m., I had already passed 6,000 votes. Wow. You personally, like for you, you had me personally, amazing. Uh At the end, I got over 11,000 votes. Yeah. And I literally had the community out and over 29,000 people voted. It's amazing. Amazing. Like Like, that's my win right there. Yeah, sure. If I did nothing else but motivate people to go out to vote, that was my win right there. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. What was different about you? What made it so uh, transformational? I mean, a five-time increase in number of voters. What do you, what do you think you did? I studied what our uh, elected officials in New York City do, and mm-hmm. I decided not to do it. Um, our elected officials, they go to churches um, and they go to community centers Um, again, only for the seniors, Um, I said, okay, I'm never going to sway our older generation to vote for me. Um, But I can tell them about me. So I decided my super voters, I would do something. It was a super voter who thought of this. She said when she was um, campaigning in the 90s, she would do uh, write letters. So I thought, let's do a postcard writing campaign. So people would just write to their friends in the district. And because it was a pandemic, they would write a note like, hey, miss you. I'm I'm thinking about, or I'm voting for Shaquana Boykin for district leader. Can you take a look and vote for her? And it became like 
this conversation piece that my postcards became. Yeah, It, it was yeah. like me sending people, um, you know, out there with a, a little bag of like 25 postcards and they would just write and call and be like, can I get more? I know 25 more. So I think when people came to the polls, they had my postcard. Yeah. Yeah. And Amazing. that changed. Mm -hmm. It's something I couldn't afford those fancy mailers, but everybody gets those fancy mailers. Yeah. And to yeah. get a handwritten note from your friend it's different. that knows this candidate, I think that's what set me apart. And I didn't count out churches. I just didn't make them my priority. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted the new vote. I wanted us people who say that we don't we don't deal with politics to deal with politics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. So one question I have to ask is, you know, we work with servant leaders and a, a lot of them are used to serving others. They don't want to be the center of attention. They're uncomfortable. And you, you know, when you're the candidate and everybody's writing about you and you're, how'd you kind of hold that of putting yourself at the center of things? Yeah, it is a very um, strange thing, especially like viral. They call us honorable. <laughs> it's so weird. So they'll like, you'll go into board of election and they'll be like, honorable Shaquana Boykin. And I'm like, oh, can you just call me Shaquana? Um, but I think you just have to be open. You have to be open. You have to tell people um, how comfortable you are. Um, and even when you're uncomfortable, you know, try to do something that makes you um, a little that that grounds you, mm. um, because when you're running, unfortunately, people want to know you. People want to talk to you. Sure. People want to be around you. So just keep that as your like motivation. Like I'm not being like some people have an ego trip. Right. But. People just really want to be in your presence. I can walk down a block and somebody's like, Shaquana? And like, you know, just just give that back to people, you know? Yeah, yeah. Love it. I do have to ask a little more. So you did answering the call and you mentioned that it was part. Can you say a little bit more about kind of what you took from that and that how that influenced your journey? Yeah. Um, answering a call was um, a, uh, I did like six workshops. It was like six workshops. Um, and when we when I say workshops, it wasn't, they were themed, but what made every workshop, um, I guess, intimate was that it was the people that made the workshops. So you'll have a makeup of people who want to serve and you get to learn from each other. Um, and when you decide to run, you get to reach back out and be like, I did it guys. And they get to like, you know, give you the, yay, you did it. Um, it's kind of like before you get to campaigning where you have a staff, you get to, you get to do a listening tour kind of like, so answering a call was being able to vent with each other, um, uh, talk about some insecurities like maybe maybe i don't look good on a stage or you know like yeah. and really talking that through it was it's really something you need to do because when you when you decide to run for office you're giving yourself sometimes you need to prepare yourself and your mm -hmm. family mm -hmm. and answering a call prepared me mentally and physically because we were in it we were like 
figuring out how to make a speech and figuring out how to, you know, um, partner with somebody on an issue or trying to figure out how do we um, answer this correctly, you know? Um, so you kind of need that because once you're out there, there's no trial run. No time to think, <laughs> no time to reflect, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's fantastic. That was our vision in creating the program, and it's it's fantastic that it's had that it. kind of Go impact. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, a couple more questions for you. Uh, tell me a little bit more about what you get to do as a district leader. Like, what do you work yeah. on? Um, my day-to-day um, is really just the organizer of our Democratic Party. And when I say organizer, um, every district, um, well, in Brooklyn, you have uh, the power goes, the elected official power goes, district leader, um, city council, no, legis- state legislation, city council, um, Senate, and Congress. And then around you have borough president and governor and mayor. Um, so I, 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 the district leaders, we have to connect so everyone up above, mayor, BPs, Senate, we organize them to work with our communities. Mm. And, and that's not really like written anywhere, but in order for our Senate, our state legislator, uh, city council to really do the work that we need them to do, they need to hear from us and they need an intermediate in between. So mm. I'm the intermediate. Um, I also staff the polling site. So primaries and general election and 10 days before we have early polls, I get people to um, go to their basic trainings, go to their early poll trainings. Sometimes people want to be um, ADA monitors, uh, which means they have to monitor the polling site, go to different locations to make sure it's actually, um, they're going through the uh, right protocols, like how to open up the site, how to close the site and how to maintain a site. Mm-hmm. Um, another role that we get is to register people to vote. We also get to um, make sure that people know about the civil court judge judges, uh, civil court candidates who want mm-hmm. to be a judge. Mm-hmm. Um, civil court can be uh, they get they get to they don't get to pick which courtroom. But if they're picked to be our civil our civil court judge, they may be in crim- criminal family um, supreme, but they mm. have to be on a ballot to get there. The other role is to um, get people excited about our Supreme Court candidates who do not get on the ballot. Mm. So we get to nominate um, judicial delegates who get to go around and get um, signatures to go to the judicial convention. Mm. And mm-hmm. at and before the judicial convention, myself and all the district leaders and the and Kings County have to vote on slots for Supreme Court. So this year we had seven slots um, and we probably had over 20 something uh, Supreme Court candidates. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's up to to me and other leaders to get to know the candidates, get to know how they um, rule on things. Um, If they know our community, how attached they are to our community. Um, And if they had any, um, uh, professional um, misconduct. 
And then if we like them, we vote, we vote for them. Yep. And so we vote for them in June um, and we have a convention in July for them. So that's basically a voice in there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so we're getting close to the end of our time here. And thank you for being so generous with your, your time and your story here. Uh, I have to note, we're having this conversation during February, Black History Month 2022. It is a very complex moment. We have a black woman who's vice president and movements all over the place to ban books that go anywhere near being honest about slavery or racism in this country. So uh, first question is, how do you understand the, the moment that we are in? Um, that's a very good question. Um, because here, I don't know if this happens anywhere else, but like being black in New York, there's different layers to it. There are, you can be a black American, you can be a black, um, African American, Mm -hmm. you can be a, a black Caribbean American. Um, so what I'm, for me, um, it just means trying to figure out how I could um, facilitate um, spaces for us to just be black and not have all these other um, titles mm. um, and not to just only be black, but really care for each other um, and really understand that as black people, we may need something or we we may know something that others may not understand. And we need to really make sure that we are amplifying that so we could show up and be better. Yeah. Um, so for Black History Month, um, I'm on a personal journey. Um, I just left my full-time job where um, it was all black and I just felt harmed by a woman. And I I just want to make sure for February and beyond that I'm always holding space for for Black women, for women, but especially Black women. Mm -hmm. Um, So what it looks like for me is just making sure that I could um, have groups, um, have a little Zoom calls with um, women, especially Black women, um, not being so hard on each other. and listening more, mm-hmm. I find like I find that I talk a lot. So just being able to step back and listen, um, yeah, yeah, that's where I'm at. I, I don't know who said it, but the idea that uh, self love is a revolutionary act for a black woman, right? Yes. Yeah. Anything you hope Americans are thinking about and reflecting on during Black History this month, this year, 2022? Um. I really want us to hear, I really want us to just see each other. Like, I know that we have eyes, but like really see people. Like if we could just see each other Mm. past the color and really feel each other um, and, and just have some type of humanity. Whew. I think that we, we could we could move mountains if mm. we just felt each other, like just has a little more empathy for each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. So powerful. So my last question for you, you know, our listeners are a lot of servant leaders who have done AmeriCorps or the military. They're looking at the headlines and wondering if they should enter the arena. What's your advice? What would you tell them, Shaquana? My advice is go for it. Um, I will tell them being um, 
the having a background that I have um, is so unique. And this is what our Democratic Party needs. They don't need people that we need a little bit of everyone, but it will be better if we have more people that who were already serving in other ways and then decided to serve because we are we know how to show up for people. We're not going to be transactional. We're not looking for um, power. We're literally looking to serve and listen to the people. Like we didn't come from business school or we literally serve. Like when I worked for Vista, I got a, a, a VAD. You get a paperwork that says X amount of people that you serve. So I know, we know the importance of serving people. And if you are looking to, if you're looking and you're saying, I don't know if I want to serve, trust me. If you answer the call, your community is really going to respect you and really understand you because you are literally what they see, but they've never seen themselves. So just answer the call. Love it. Love it. Thank you. You're welcome. Any, anything else you want to say to feel complete? Anything else you want to add? Um, I just want to say that no matter if you don't um, answer the call, if you do answer the call, it's always good to stay involved locally, even if it's just going to one community meeting, um, going to one event. If you are going to run, you need a little bit of community um, buy-in. And, and that means showing up in communities. So go to as many community events safely, even if it's virtually, just to get to know your community. Chiquana Boykin, thank you, thank you, thank you for making time. Uh, your journey is amazing and you're just getting started and just so grateful to share your wisdom with our community. Thanks so much, Max. This has been the New Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Max Clow. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us for our next episode when we meet another servant leader who has chosen to step up and serve through politics. If you want to learn more about New Politics and the candidates that we support, please check us out online at newpolitics.org. And if you're a fan of what we're doing with the podcast, I invite you to become a subscriber and give us a positive rating. It's a small thing you can do that helps us out in a big way. And if you believe in the work we're doing here at New Politics, please consider donating via our website to support our efforts to revitalize American democracy by bringing more servant leaders like Shaquana into politics. I'll leave you with this question. How do you feel called to serve at this critical moment for our nation? Thanks for joining. See you next time.